Welcome to another episode of Photo Geek Weekly. This is episode 171, recorded on March 9th of 2023. Hello, everybody, and thanks for tuning in to another episode uh, of the Photo Geekery Show. I am your host, Don Kamarechka, and with me, as always, is a guest. And I'm I'm glad that I'm a little bit um, separated from North America in terms of time zones. It's much easier to get this guest on the podcast because he is in Japan. Welcome to the show, Martin Bailey. How are you doing? It's been so long. It has. Thanks for having me, Don. And it's... Uh... It's, I don't know, it must be a couple of years now, and I'm really excited to be back on your show. Thanks for the invite. Oh, it's it's my pleasure. I'm glad that uh, that we could find the time. I I know that uh, time is valuable uh, to us as uh, photographers and entrepreneurs and and family people. I mean, I love uh, I, I love that you you had mentioned to me, and and I hope you don't mind uh, me me saying this that you put a, a hard stop at work or you try to at seven o'clock mm, so mm. that you've got some some time specifically for family and and all of that and that might kind of lead into our our first story mm. uh, but before we get to that uh what is uh in general how how is how is life in your your, your base just outside of tokyo if i recall correctly mm. and uh how's the last year or two or three been for you Oh, it's been a roller coaster for sure. I we we we're in Tokyo, but we're outside of the twenty three wards, which is like the core of Tokyo. We're over on a city on the west. Um, but I, you know, I I don't capitalize on being in Tokyo. I'm not a street photographer or anything like that. It's just a base for me. Um, but you know, the the pandemic threw a, a number of um, very large challenges our way. Uh, my tours, which were a huge chunk of my revenue. Uh, they basically went away um, because that you know nobody could travel and I couldn't get out of Japan and nobody could get in. But we uh, last May um, we were at the point where I was about to um, cancel my Namibia trip. Well, it was actually it would have been Mar- March time. We. We, I couldn't get out of Japan. There was no way that I was even going to be able to get a flight out of Japan. And they they held a lot of these travel bans in place way too long. I remember seeing you on your first flight after the pandemic on Twitter and that um, around a year before I was able to, I think it was when you flew to Bulgaria. Um, That's right, yeah. And I, I was thinking, oh, well, everywhere else is opening up, but Japan stayed locked down for a very long time. And so it, I was able to do Namibia last summer, but that was my first trip in two and a half years. And thankfully, my three Japan winter landscape and two winter wildlife trips have just finished in January and February. So I've been out in the field with my camera in my hand every day, um, having a great time with some amazing photographers. And, uh, you know, it's it's just been great to be get to kind of st- stepping back into how it used to be, you know, a bit of money coming in and uh, actually actively out in the field. I've got a little bit of suntan for the first time in a while as well. You, you look like the kind of person, forgive me for saying so, that would go from pale white to sunburned in, a, in an <laughs> afternoon. <laughs> yeah, well, I actually, I, I go negative. My, my, if I was to show you my legs, they're blue. 
Um, they're, they're oh goodness! Actually, <laughs> no, they're 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 so white that they seem to reflect more blue light than red, like snow does. So it's it's very uh, it's very strange. But um, yeah, I I do I I burn easily, but uh, I actually I had a on the side of my nose a, a few years ago. I had um, what was basically a pre-cancer. It was a growth that they had to they had to take out, um, but it was a uh, supposedly i forget the name now it's a solar solar something or other it's uh, and it's very hard almost like a corn and they had to take it out um and it was if they leave it, it basically becomes a skin cancer so i'm trying to be uh, you know a little bit conscious of not getting too much sun so i do use sunscreen and stuff but yeah. The sun is out to kill you. Uh, don't let anybody <laughs> tell you otherwise. But you did mention uh, about the, uh, the the pandemic and the the, the lockdowns and travel restrictions and so on. Mm. Uh, I saw a, a graph uh, this past week. I forget exactly when, but it outlined the um, the excess deaths in uh, in populations based on country uh, from the average as a deviation. And you mentioned, of course, that, you know, I, I live in, in Bulgaria now. Bulgaria was at the top of the list. Mm. Uh, the number of excess deaths in this country was, I think, 19.5% higher than average, wow. which is significant. And th those are, uh, you know, from any causes, you know, mm. it, let's just be clear, it doesn't have to be associated with COVID. But, you know, that mm. was the big thing over that time period. Mm. Japan's was very close to normal. Mm. Uh, I don't think anybody was normal per se, but uh, Japan mm. was doing pretty darn good. So yeah, those travel yeah. restrictions may have had an impact on saving mm. lives. Correlation does not equal causation. And I mm. don't have proof to back that statement up. Mm. But, um, you know, uh, we, you I, know I fear that the lockdowns in some places were let up a little bit too early. Mm. And, uh, well, people so died. The, what, what's happened, though, is that because Japan locked down for so long, yes, they prevented a lot of deaths during the main bulk of the pandemic, but we were seeing 400 deaths a day here in January and February this year. And that was higher than we'd had throughout the whole pandemic. And so right. what, had, what had happened is they'd got no um, herd immunity. And so because they'd kept everyone out for so long, and then when they opened up in October or so last year, and people started bringing in and bringing in probably a lot of minor strains that we'd not really had any um, exposure to. That caused a spike that really made, you know, there was way too many deaths for this point in the pandemic. Yeah. There was way too many deaths during this last couple of months. So it's probably if you average it out, I don't think the story will be as good. But it, for sure, during the bulk of the pandemic, they did a good job. Yeah, and uh, you know, here people tend to not um, trust the uh, the government message, and, and mm. I I get that. I don't know how far back in culture it is, but I know that Bulgaria was under the Ottoman rule for five hundred years, mm. um, and they weren't really nice rulers. Uh, and then there was the uh, the Soviet influence, which also wasn't great. Uh, for the country at large. And then now, of course, they're under the umbrella of the European Union, which uh, I agree with. Some people don't. Mm. And so, you know, there's always this distrust of that that higher uh, messenger. 
Mm. And that might have played into uh, into why people were just disregarding it to a greater degree. But I digress. We're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about photography. <laughs> and we've got some good stories on the uh, on the docket today. Starting with number one, this is kind of a, an, a sandbox topic, which I like mm. to throw in, especially when I haven't talked to a guest in a while. Mm. From F-Stoppers, uh, a week in the life of a professional photographer. What does it really take? Uh, this is written by Michael Barrow, uh, specifically for F-Stoppers. And he goes in, and he has some fun with this, talking about what he does typically on his days, uh, somehow structuring things based on a day of the week and what might happen on that particular day, which I am not capable of doing. <laughs> um, and he also only lists Monday to Friday, and I'm often working on the weekends too. Mm. So we can... Talk about what Michael does in his uh, in his life, but I also I, I really want to talk more about what you and me do. Was mm. there anything that resonated with you about Michael's story and how he structures his uh, his professional time or unprofessional as it sometimes occurs? <laughs> yeah, I mean it, it, it's a good article, and I think it's it's definitely something that someone who's considering becoming a photographer should look at. Um, but um, to me, I mean. He says that he starts off while his wife is a little bit annoyed with him going while she goes off to work and he's still in bed uh, looking through Instagram. Oh, that's Instagram. totally me. That's, yeah, uh, but, I mean, my, yeah. my wife will make me a coffee while I am still in mm. bed and I'm mm. scrolling Twitter or Instagram or whatever. Uh, mm. And I, it's, it's market research. It's developmental. Mm. Uh, you know, I'm finding stories for this podcast, for yeah, example, yeah. right? Yeah. So for me, though, I mean, I... I am really just not that big a, a, I mean, I enjoy Instagram as a marketing tool and, and I'm, I do a lot of social network stuff for that. But, you know, if it wasn't for the need to market anything, I probably wouldn't open any of them until, you know, it, I mean, some days I don't open them anyway. Um, so although, you know, I can appreciate that, you know, especially with you, you, you come up with amazing stories. I don't know how you do, well, I do know how you do it because you just told me, but I, <laughs> you know, part, part of me says, yeah, we should be doing that, but I, I can't be doing that. And, and what, what happened though, partly related to what you were saying, um, how I've, I've made a promise with my wife that I don't do any, um, on emergency or non-emergency work after 7 PM now. Um, what I used to do is exactly that. I would, I would wake up and while we're getting up and, you know, starting to start our day, I would have Twitter and, and Instagram and I'd be looking at that stuff, but it used to annoy the hell out of my wife. And I have spent the last 13 years in business, um, gradually wearing her down and that, you know, so I think that what I, I for a while now. I've had a promise that I'm not allowed to open a computer or my phone until after breakfast. So that probably is a big thing that uh, would would throw a, um, I'm going to say a spanner in the works. Um, <laughs> uh, Self-control is a difficult thing when you're an entrepreneur and, and you basically mm. beat to your own drum, right? Exactly. And yeah. uh, then create rules that you create for yourself and must abide by with no punishment other than the ire of your wife. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it, it's tricky. Uh, in, in reading Michael's article here, um, there's one sentence that stands out for me in his Monday routine. Quote, I am a scattered individual. And I think we <laughs> all are. Um, mm. 
And, you know, he describes what his day is and his Monday, he, you know, the afternoon hours, he says, will wind away with editing, tweaking, researching, sorting, chasing invoices, generally working on marketing, you know, Mm. Instagram post schedules, website portfolio updating, and more recently touching base uh, with new potential interested parties for future bookings, etc. So, um, you know, when I see that type of, uh, you know, wording, you know, we we hear the gig economy and Mm. the idea that, you know, as an entrepreneur, you don't have a boss, you have a thousand bosses because every mm. project is, you know, they have their own boss and you have to mm. uh, make sure that you make everybody happy. Um, but you also have to make yourself happy, I think. Mm. And I've got, uh, you know, a number of clients right now. Sometimes I'm, I'm working on uh, images that are being licensed to be put into books. Sometimes it's uh, commissioned documentary film work. I've Mm. got students that take courses with me. I've got one going on right now and I've got more coming up later in the year. And I know you do a lot of the same type of stuff. And I find myself uh, the majority of the time away from the camera and Mm. just dealing with the business side of stuff. And I've put in the, you know, the work to have a portfolio and to have the skills. And now the, the, the business model is somewhat transitioning to say, okay, well, I've got, a, uh, a customer that wants to license an image that I took 10 years ago. Mm. And, and so the dividends are paying off now that I am further into my career, that mm. there's, I, I'm still picking up the camera. Don't get me wrong. Mm. I've got an idea yeah. for a setup right over there. I've plucked a crocus from my garden yesterday and I've got it under a plant light with all of the seedlings that are going to go in the greenhouse in a couple of weeks. And it's just opening up right now during this podcast for which I will then, I hope this works. If it doesn't, well, it, it was a failed experiment. I'm going to yeah. take a uh, a water pearl or a water bead, which was my pick of the week last week, which is a tiny little gel bead, and uh, you f- add it to water and it grows and it just kind of becomes mostly water at that point. Mm. But I'm going to try to balance that on the pistol in the center of a crocus mm. as a little pedestal. And then... If I can get that to work, I'll put a flower in the background, a Gerber daisy to refract an image in that, but that's not good enough. At that point, if that is a success, I have to uh, get a live actor to come into play. Mm. And I've seen a lot of ladybugs in our garden right now. Mm. And so if I can get one of those beautiful red domed beetles to not just interact with the scene, but be on top of the water beat. So... (laughs) Because you wouldn't be able to do that with a water droplet, right? It, obviously, you can't climb on top of a water droplet, but you can mm. with a water bead. And yeah. so uh, I've got – the gears are spinning in my head for <laughs> what I can do with my camera, and I'm coming yeah. up with these ideas. And, and if that fails, and it likely will the first time, mm. then I go back to the drawing board. And you might not see that idea come to fruition for some time until mm. I reimagine it in a different way. Mm. And so my mind is always thinking about that stuff. But at the same time, I think, okay, that picture and taking it directly makes me no money, right? Mm. Like I'm not, I'm doing that for my own enjoyment. Eventually Mm. it might win something in a contest or it might get licensed by somebody or I could use it in a presentation and that's tangentially related to income. Mm. Um, But there's a lot of the stuff that I do that is still purely for the love of it. And I Mm. think I need that because if I was just... Uh, you know, button down and say, okay, you know, boss says this, I do that. Um, mm. And I do that sometimes. Don't, don't yeah. get me wrong. But mm. how, how do you find that uh, creative impulse for you? Is it still, is that fire still burning? 
Absolutely. I I am on fire when I'm out, literally. I mean, I, I, I have a, a, I believe it's a Northern European gene that causes something called the hunter's response. So I'm there at minus 10 with, with red hot hands. I'm like, I literally feel as though I'm on <laughs> fire sometimes while I'm shooting in really cold conditions. But I built my business around doing things that I love. And I mean, to a degree, you know, this is partly why I was so hit by the uh, by the pandemic because the result is that I've stopped doing a lot of the things that, although I enjoyed it, I didn't enjoy the negotiation. So I do very little commercial work now because everyone wanted you to do like days and days work for virtually nothing, and so I have to I have to meet someone that completely understands the value of the photographer before I will agree to do commercial work anymore. So the the main creative stuff for me is, as you were saying, I will pick a project, I'll go and uh, I'll put a camera around my neck and go and shoot in, you know, around town or something. But most of the time, it's like you just said, something in the studio, set something up, create something. And I do it because I love it. And I, when I'm out in the field with my, on my tours, I only run tours in places that I am really completely connected to. Um, I wouldn't run any tour if I fell out of love with the place. You know, I can't do stuff like that just for money. Um, it has yeah. to be because there's a passion behind it. And that's when I work, when we work at our best. When you're you passionate working, about. Uh, could you imagine taking a tour with somebody who hmm. hated what they were doing? <laughs> that would not be an enjoyable experience for anybody. Obviously, the person running the tour hates what they're what they're doing, and that's going to shine through uh, in in a very frustrating way in, in yeah. the end result. We have to love it, right? Right, right. And you know, I mean, I've met photographers at places like the the Snow Monkeys where we're there, and one guy said to me one year, "Why do you even bring a camera anymore? You've been here so many times." <laughs> I'm like, well, because I love being here and I, I want to photograph the snow monkeys. And that's what I believe gives me the right to bring other people here and, and tell them that this is what we're going to shoot. You know, I mean, when the bus stops, I'm always the first one off and, and heading out into the field. I'll tell my guests where we're going and then, and then I'll lead. I don't wait for them all. You know, I'll wait for them all to get back on the bus when I get back. That's a politeness, but. I'm the first one off because I want to be literally out there saying, this is where we're going. Come on, guys, follow me. You know, it, How many times have you done the, the Snow Monkeys tour? Um, so I did the first one, I think it was 2009, and we did one a year for the first few, and then we've been doing two a year. So it's probably around 25 times now. Um, and I, st I love it as much now as I did when I, did the, when I first visited there's something to be said about doing the same thing numerous times, many numerous times, like you mm. said, 25 times. Mm. Um, it, and I've taken uh, in the past students to um, a, a set of waterfalls in Ontario uh, mm. during a landscape photography course that I used to teach through Georgian College. Mm. And I'd been there, I, I don't know how many times, more than 20 times just myself. Mm. Uh, it's therapeutic to just kind of walk amongst the rocks and the water and if there's been rain recently, then different pathways open up, or if there hasn't been, then smaller ones uh, appear more beautiful. And every time mm. it's constantly changing and there's no 
repetition, even though the location is identical. Mm. And so you can kind of get lost in those details. Mm. And when I would take students there, I would show them and I would passionately uh, you know, exclaim, oh, wow, this second set of waterfalls is open. Everybody check this out. This isn't normally mm. here. And, um, mm. and that, uh, I guess, passion and, and enjoyment of Enthusiasm. that scenario gets every yeah, enthusiasm gets everybody uh, energized mm. and then they start exploring this and then they uh, everybody finds their own little yeah. corner to to explore mm. but if i if i hadn't found the joy in repeatedly visiting those locations uh and i just show up like a, a worn out uh you know mm. boy scout that's done this 20 times and it's like all right mm. let's just go through the motions mm. that's not going to be fun so no, i hear no. you it's all, yeah. it's all part and parcel to being a professional, but also you can't be a professional in this career unless you're passionate about it. I think mm. that's what it boils down to. Absolutely. Totally agree. Okay. Um, great first story. And I love catching up and, and doing this banter back and forth with you, Martin. Um, mm. I'm curious if you, in your professional careers, um, have ever had to deal with copyright infringement. And this next story hits on that. Have you had to deal with this at all? Oh, absolutely. I, but I, I'm not, I've got a big problem with copyright, um, the, with how I handle copyright infringements because the majority of my images are on a stock agency and they are absolutely terrible at providing information on who has the images. Um, and they, a lot of, um, the the people that will fight legal battles on these things will often, or the people that I've been in touch with, often say, if it's on a stock agency, we can't fight that. You know, we can't fight for you with that image. Um, and it's it, so it's always been a very convoluted and and somewhat annoying process for me. I've stopped using stock agencies for the majority of my work. Um, mm. There's a handful of snowflakes that are licensed by Science uh, Science Source, which is a fairly niche agency, and they always tell me who their clients are uh, mm. when they uh, send me the invoice, and that's fine, that's perfect, I like that. But in the past, I had used this is going way back, iStock Photo, mm. and I remember that I had one of my images licensed on the cover of uh, the journal Nature Structural and Molecular Biology. Mm. And it was a snowflake. I got paid like a dollar or two for it, almost mm. nothing. And that's when I decided to take my images off of there. Mm. But I had discovered my images on other sites. And I asked iStock, can you provide me a list of the people that have licensed my work? They flat out refused. Yeah, that yeah. there was no way that I was going to know who behind the scenes had the rights to use my work. Absolutely, and it was That's what they do. it was in that moment that I thought to myself, okay, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do this stock thing anymore. At least not through that agency with those types of rules. I just backed out entirely. Mm. Um, and sometimes I, I have to fight copyright issues myself. It might be a delicate matter. Uh, you know, personal in a way, or maybe it's in a country where I can't find proper uh, legal representatives. And I still try. Uh, mm. I've got lawyers in Canada and the US. And for a lot of European countries, I use pick rights. And they have representatives uh, in, I don't know, maybe a dozen countries or so. I'd have mm. to look up the exact list, including Bulgaria, for that matter. 
So uh, I've I've had some I've had one successful copyright infringement settlement in Bulgaria, and of course there's mm. non-disclosure agreements, and I can't dis- uh, discuss the uh, the entities involved. Mm. But you know uh, you can defend your work, but mm. sometimes, especially if the claim is a small one, it's difficult to get a lawyer involved because mm. they're going to want their cut of it, or they're going to want to be paid for their hours, and sometimes the hourly rate is going to vastly expand beyond what the settlement is going to be. Mm. I remember one claim I had with image rights and I, I think they revised their strategy after a while, but there, uh, there was a, a settlement that was for about a thousand or $1,500. It wasn't a, a, a huge number, mm. but um, when they took their cut and the lawyer that they hired took their cut and everybody was taking their cuts, I got $80 mm. and that, also required me to drive from Barrie to Toronto uh, mm. and find parking in downtown Toronto, which was a nightmare. Um, the time and the parking fees vastly eclipsed the $80 mm. that I got from that particular mm. case. Mm. So there is a better way in at least the United States. Um, so this article, long story to get to the title of this, uh, New Copyright Claims Board Rules in Favor of Photographer in their first case, reported on Petapixel. Uh, Matt Graukut uh, wrote this, and in a judgment on February 28th of 2023, the CCB uh, ruled in favor of the plaintiff, David Oppenheimer, who sued a lawyer named Douglas Pruton for the use of one of his photographs on his website without permission. Now, the Copyright Claims Board has a minimal... Uh, level of $750. If they rule in favor of the photographer, you won't get less than $750. The maximum is $15,000. So that's quite a wide range. Uh, And when this originally went to a traditional court, uh, uh, Oppenheimer claimed that he was, uh, you know, was demanding $30,000. And there are stipulations within US copyright law. I'm not a lawyer. And I know you aren't either, Martin. Mm-hmm. Best of my knowledge, you're not a lawyer. No. So um, th- th- there's a big difference between these numbers and what was eventually rewarded, which was $1,000. Mm-hmm. Now, in the US copyright uh, law, you know, you've got copyright management information, which is a could include a watermark or even metadata uh, could be argued is a way to manage that information. And when that's removed, uh, there can be a secondary claim of up to $25,000. If a copyright is registered versus unregistered in the US system makes a huge difference. And I mm-hmm. encourage everybody um, to register their copyrights in the United States, which I know you and I both do, even though we're not U.S. citizens, mm. in order to maintain uh, protections there. And through the various conventions of copyright acts around the world, um, I think the biggest one is the Berne Convention. Basically, it states that the copyright laws of any one country are respected in other countries that have signed that same agreement, even if some countries don't have a registration process, like the United States, having your copyright registered shows a proactive interest in you protecting those rights in other countries mm. that identify with those particular rulings. Anyhow, I'm getting off topic here. 
Uh, successful ruling, $1,000, uh, a lot down from the 30000 even though the maximum the copyright um, uh, claims board could have rewarded was half of the initial demand. Hmm. Is this a way forward for photographers? Is this a tool that you could conceivably use in the future? I I would say conceivably, yes. Um, I, I actually, I should add that because you know, I mentioned earlier that a lot of my work was on a stock agency and that was what was stopping me from making claims. I actually have not put anything into that agency for over four years now, maybe five years. And that is partly because of what you said. I mean, that I, they make a decent amount of money for the, for the images. Um, but they, I don't like the way it completely, um, removes my ability to make a claim on for anything that is, is, you know, used illegally. Um, so I do have um, an interest in, in looking into these sort of claims, but I would I don't know at this point whether or not I would do it via the, the CCB or through a regular lawyer. Um, I'm actually, I, yeah. I started working and I, I need to look up the name of this service, but I've had an, an account with a service for many years that look, look for images that are posted on my website and then looks for them elsewhere. And they have got a system where I can ask their lawyers to look into, you know, and to, to fight claims. And well, because what system of, is this? What, what is, uh, tell us by name. I, I, if you can remember, see, <laughs> I, I think it was, it was Pix, it was Pix something. Pixie? Pixie. Might be probably Pixie. what you're thinking. Yeah. 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 Um, um and, and so I, I just want to make sure that anybody looking into these particular entities makes uh, certain that in their terms and conditions or their policies or whatever rules they want to uh, put forth is that they don't have the right of first refusal for stuff mm. that they, they discover. Because if I get a really uh, important claim that I want to work one-on-one -on -one with a lawyer, if the discovery firm has the right to pursue it first, unless they decline to pursue it, some of these uh, companies that go en masse and send out, you know, hundreds or thousands or, you know, tens of thousands of letters for all of their clients, they're not going to have a personal touch in following up. Mm. And they'll do that same less than personal approach for everything, regardless mm. of how big or small the claim is. Mm. And uh, I want to have, you know, a, a proper attention. That's why I work specifically with lawyers uh, yeah. when I can. Yeah. Mm. Um and I've used a service, uh, and I think I even made it a pick of the week at one point in the past, called infringement.report. Mm. And uh, .report is the TLD, so that's the full domain name, infringement.report. And I, the package that I have is grandfathered in. I don't think that they uh, allow that one anymore. They have bigger ones at the moment. But they've discovered so many infringements for me. And a lot of them are actionable. Uh, some of them are not, you know, if it's a personal thing, I send a takedown notice and, uh, and I've sent a lot of takedown notices to social media platforms, um, over the years, over a thousand yearly, I think to meta. Uh, so that's mm. Facebook and Instagram. Mm. And, uh, but if it's commercial in nature, then that goes into one of the piles for the lawyers to take a look at regardless uh, if the country is in germany then it goes to pick rights right if it's in uh, the united states i've got a couple of people i work with there in canada there's one firm that i work with predominantly and i i feel like this 
especially for if I've got a smaller claim in the US that maybe I didn't register the copyright to, and that's a de facto no. Uh, lawyers uh, are not going to be taking that that case unless it's really egregious and the actual damages uh, far exceed what the statutory damages might be. And that sometimes happens, hasn't happened to me. But this, um, uh, so the, uh, uh, I'll, I'll read one sentence here from the article. Oppenheimer filed a lawsuit in federal court, but both parties agreed to move the case to the newly formed CCB in April of 2022. So that gives mm. you a timeline of how long it took to go through this platform. That opened in 2021. Uh, so April uh, of one year to February of the next, that's what, 10 months or so, mm. uh, based on on the dates, maybe 11. But I, I think to myself, that's 10 or 11 months fighting this. And it's probably not a constant dialogue, but it's got to go through these chains to get $1,000 at the end of it. Is it worth it? I, I definitely think it is. But... I don't know how much effort it took Oppenheimer to go through this process until I've done so myself. Mm. And I might be looking at claims in the next, uh, I don't know, month or two and see if there's one viable to put through this platform and just kind of see how it goes mm. because people steal my work all the time, unfortunately. Mm. And just because something is posted online doesn't mean it's free for people to use, right? Mm. I I think, I mean, that that is something that I really need to look in more look into again um, because I literally I, I stopped using the agency because of this and I still haven't really looked into but you know the the last time I looked in it is it is pix it, it's pixie but I can't recall the spelling so I can't check um I I, I need I to look P-I-X-S-Y, it up P-I-X-S-Y if I'm not mistaken is that but it? I could be mistaken but so I mean that they send me a report every month, and there are there are thousands of images that I know have been um, at least found elsewhere, and some are on the books of on the cover of books. Um, they've been used in all sorts of ways, and I should really I mean there may be a nice check there waiting for for some of them, um, and and a lot of them will probably be after I stopped. Um, submitting images to the agency. So I'll have to take a look. There is also in many countries, a statute of limitations on how long uh, you can go between the time of discovery, which uh, could even yeah. be by the, the service that you're using the date that they discovered it versus mm. the time that you take action. I believe in the United States, it's three years. Mm. Um, uh, if, if you discover something and you try to negotiate and it doesn't go anywhere, people just ignore you and it's three years in a day before you decide to file a lawsuit, it'll be thrown mm. on the court because, uh, yeah, um, yeah. you have to, you have to work within that timely fashion to defend your copyright. Mm. Mm. But this kind of dovetails nicely into the third story, uh, which was presented to me uh, yesterday by Steve Brazel. Thank you, Steve, for throwing this my way. It kind of talks a lot about copyright from a different angle. And uh, from Ars Technica, uh, Musk, Elon Musk, suspends, quote, overzealous rights holder for, quote, weaponizing the DMCA, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act on Twitter. And this, uh, I'm sure, relates to numerous accounts, but the story is written about particular uh, one particular account, Massimo, uh, which is on Twitter at, at Rainmaker1973. Uh, and I'll, I'll read one quote here. 
says, I was hit by DMCA tens of times since 2014, and I was suspended once for three weeks, Massimo tweeted. Uh, I paid more than $1,500 to keep this account open. And I don't know any specifics, but one can assume that that was to the people claiming copyright for which the payment was a settlement and the copyright notice was retracted. That's not stated anywhere, um, Mm. but that is just my assumption of where the money would go because it wouldn't have gone to Twitter. Uh, in mm. that particular case. Uh, and I've paid all those that have blackmailed me. So that follows up with that assumption. <laughs> blackmailed is a strong word uh, mm. in that regard. And I've uh, been blocked in error several times and I'm struggling going on like this. So let's tear this apart because there's a lot of accounts online, not just on Twitter. This is true of basically any social media platform where they'll find something pretty or interesting on the web And they'll take it without permission of the copyright holder. Mm. And they'll post it on their platform. Some give credit, some do not. This particular account gives credit. But credit alone, I don't think qualifies for fair use. There's Mm. a number of pillars in fair use that you have to make sure it's a pretty rigid requirement. If you don't qualify for that, you have to be licensing the the image and have an agreement with the person that owns the copyright to it but many of these accounts they attract a massive audience Mm. this particular one has over 1 million followers on twitter and i've seen similar accounts on facebook and instagram and some of my images have appeared on them in the past i've had some accounts on facebook for example that they'll just take a gallery of 20 odd water droplet images of mine and throw that up and say, you know, credit Don Kamarechka. Well, okay. You can't just publish all of my work that I would charge a magazine, a considerable fee to Mm. license that work for. And I send the takedown notices and I will often get very vitriolic, uh, aggressive commentary back from these people Mm. because their account was locked because they violated copyright on multiple accounts, Uh, uh, like multiple times I had to submit these particular claims. And sometimes we work it out. Sometimes they just wave their hands in the air and they say, well, screw you. And, uh, And away they go. And such is life. But when it comes to being a creative, I've talked long enough. I want your opinions here, Martin. How do you land? What is your opinion on this type of behavior? People amassing large audiences based on the work of others? Um, should they pay for it? Is there a change in the laws that need to happen to make this more acceptable? Or is this mm. purely unacceptable and it should be shamed? Mm. Well, I mean, this this person that we're talking about, Mas- Massimo, was it? Um, Matt Massimo, the, Massimo, however it's Massimo, pronounced, yeah. the, the, they wouldn't be doing this if they had to pay for any of the work that they were. You know, they they're bitching about paying one thousand five hundred dollars to to make people go away. They're probably the ones that, like you say, that really were were very vocal and and did a lot to try and get some recognition for their work. But the people don't people like this don't pay for anything yeah they they believe it should all be free um and whether or not i i mean i don't agree that they should be able to do this you know there's a lot of a lot of people doing this i've found my images in in and been retweeted in that not retweeted but just completely shared i've had whole uh documents from my you know whole posts from my website 
pretty much rebranded as someone else's and posted. And it's, yeah, it's annoying, especially when there's no, no credit back to you. But I think that, you know, like you said, even crediting someone, it's got to be a legitimate. What I would prefer people to do is to say, I love your work. I want to do a post. I want to include these images and I'll, and I'll put it, you know, I'll put a link back to your website. Is that okay? Most of the time, if that's the case, unless there's, if the, and they're going to have like, um, it's a, a commercial use. I pretty much am okay with it. Um, but the fact that a lot of people are doing this, and think that it's okay, think that they're within their rights to just use other people's images and amass a large following from it. I think it it should be stopped. Um, but I, on the other hand, I'm also thinking that, you know, a lot of people are probably going to be getting more exposure for having their work on these sort of places. Ah, therein lies but the it, rub, though, Martin. That, I mean, it, well, exposure. Yeah. I, I can't yeah. pay the bills with exposure, right? Uh, you can't. You can't. But the, but the thing is, is it's it's not everybody. This is this is what's kill, killing photography as a business. Um, not everybody wants to make a living from photography. And, uh, you know, I I do, you do. And there are many, many people out there that do. But there are probably an inordinate amount more people out there now that are making decent photos that all they all they want is for people to, you know, to come to their website or to, um, you know, to, to notice who they are. Uh, that's why stock photography went from, you know, I used to be able to pay my rent with stock sales. I, I get one payment a year now that maybe would pay my rent if I was lucky. Um, Ten years ago, the, I was I was getting multiple thousand dollar sales of stock images. Now they're all a couple of hundred, but that's even with a with a very good stock agency. Um, although they're not good in in the respects that we talked about earlier. Um, but you know, a lot of people are selling them on on some of the regular stock agencies. They're getting a dollar or two an image, and so when you consider that that's if if we take it down to that being the worth to the majority of people then, you know, it's, I don't agree with it, but yeah, like you say, that therein is the rub. It's, it's what, it's what's happening. That's com- commoditization of photography is probably something that to, in the largest, to the largest, oh, to a large degree, we really can't stop now. Well, and, and to me, the problem is that, uh, uh the accounts on Twitter that mm. send valid DMCA, uh, claims, Mm. And, you know, that that's a, a legal right to do that, have their Twitter account suspended. And the Twitter account's not a right, it's a privilege, and it's a private entity. And, and I totally understand uh, that they, they, can, uh, they can kick me off of Twitter for any reason that they want that is a choice of mine to post something uh, on that platform that they don't necessarily agree with. Um, and yeah, you know, there are certain, uh, inalienable rights that one might have on a platform. You know, obviously Twitter can't suspend somebody in a way that could be con- uh, construed as, as racist or, you know, in violating the rights of an individual. But if I exercise my right to, uh, file a DMCA claim, should Twitter then be able to, for that is the only reason, suspend my account on the mm. platform because I'm exercising my rights. Absolutely I, not. 
I don't think that should be allowed. Now, no, and, and we were no. talking bef- before we started recording, like if I, if I posted a picture of myself after I spray painted my hair green and they really don't like people that have green hair and that was a choice I made and they suspend my account because they're against green haired people. Well, there's no naturally green haired person. So they're not, uh, you know, banning my account because of some natural thing that I don't have a choice in the matter of. And maybe they can legally do that. But if I'm exercising my legal rights, I shouldn't face repercussions on the platform as a result of that. Absolutely. And I, I push back hard on, on that one for sure. Mm. You know, uh, the, the platforms that we use have way too much power. And I think that, you know, like you say, it's not, a, it's not so much a right. We don't have a right to have an account on any of them. Um, but I, for example... Many years ago, um, I forget, it must be 10, maybe seven or eight, maybe ten, up to 10 years ago now, I got really frustrated with YouTube um, because they were slapping copyright infringement notices on, on videos that I'd created that, con- that contained licensed music. And I fought them. Some of them can be very... Um, stressful because the wording is like if you lose this infringe this claim to to, you know to rebuff this infringement uh, notice we could we could or we will take you to court and this and that and the other i'm thinking oh yeah so i i've paid my money i've done everything legally and they're threatening that they could take me to court it's it's quite a stressful process but it is. I, and and be, be aware, everybody, not just you, Martin, but anybody hmm. that gets a copyright infringement, uh, DMCA takedown claim on any platform, they can file a counter notice. Hmm. And uh, there's a particular way that it has to be worded, and you can find a template online. And you can file that counter notice against that claim for which the person um, or that the platform that f- uh, for which the DMCA was uh, was filed to they have to reinstate the content unless they have a, uh, a notification like a judgment from a court of law. It has to be an official judgment uh, that would then take it down again. So, mm. And I've had this happen too, where somebody has, um, uh, they, they filed a counter notice to an image that I said, okay, take it down on YouTube. But they filed the official counter notice. YouTube is no longer involved in the process. I've got their address. I've got their contact information. I can file a lawsuit against them because that has to be provided in the counter notice. Problem is, they're in Russia. And I can't mm. exactly fight a copyright case in Russia. Mm. So YouTube has washed their hands of it. The counter mm. notice was claimed. I would have to file a lawsuit in Russia. That's not going to happen. And mm. that's the end of the story. Well, the the thing that, that annoyed me with the YouTube episode is that i i fought and won the the infringement cr- uh, claim and the moment they took the claim off and and re-released my video i literally the same robot and two others slapped the same infri- slapped an infringement <laughs> on the same thing and it one of them was that so the, my problem was was i said to them i even had a signed um, license from the CEO of the company from which I bought the license, but there's no mechanism mechanism in place to to say, okay, I'm going to embed my license into this music, into this video, and you have to develop a system whereas you could check my license and just stop annoying me. 
But YouTube, all they were interested in is forcing me to put ads on the on the work so that they could make money from the video. And I wouldn't get a penny of it because it had been an infringement. So I I literally I I fought the infringement once more and while I was fighting that I deleted all of my other videos and the moment I got rid of I I won the case again, I deleted that video and I've never posted anything on YouTube since. But that is to my detriment because YouTube is the biggest platform. I would have more uh, followers if I was working on YouTube where everybody goes to watch videos. So I'm, yes, cutting my nose off to spite my face, but I can't, I could not stand that they could do that. And it comes back to what the reason I'm telling this now is because these platforms have way too much power to do whatever they want. And we we're in a situation where it's either we, we like it or lump it. Yeah. I mean, I've got a couple of thousand followers on YouTube, even though I don't use the platform at all. I mean, I've got a handful mm. of videos up there. And um, like when I do courses, I'll, uh, I'll record the, the Zoom session if it's an online uh, class session. And I, you know, I upload it to my YouTube account, but it's an unlisted video. So anybody that was in the class can, can view it. So it's a tool mm. for me to that end. Mm. Um, but from an audience building perspective, I feel your pain. Um, mm. I've, uh, I've had, uh, there was one video that I had permission from the, the creator of the song to use. And mm. I got a notice from the recording label that it was infringing on copyright and that, mm. you know, they're going to put video, uh, uh, ads on it and I won't get any revenue. And I fought it, but really it just came back to the same argument again, uh, just mm. like you've encountered and I can't win. I, mm. I've got all the permissions I need, but I can't, I can't win that fight. So mm. Um, mm. Maybe, maybe I commission my own music uh, that's not associated well, with anything from now on. That, that is actually what I did. I, I, since that time, I have made my own music for, I'm not commissioning it, I make it myself. I've, I've made my own music for all of my videos that I put out. And I, because I, I don't license any music anymore. I just make it myself. Uh, well, okay. Kudos to you. I'm very happy that you have the musical inclination to do so. I am musically inept. So that might mean that I have to pay somebody uh, to yeah. that end. Well, but but th th that's a way around a problem that shouldn't have to happen. That shouldn't be a problem for us at all. Well, it shouldn't because, like I say, I would had paid for the music, which I was getting a copyright ban for it. So paying for it doesn't even help. You know, it's you're still if it's YouTube, you're still going to get a problem if that is in the public domain because the bots will come in and say, "Oh, this is you don't have a license for this," and there's no there mechanism to ask and yeah. check whether you do or not. There was a story from Getty uh, a number of years ago, or not from them, but about them, where uh, one particular photographer and I forget her name off the top of my head, but she had dedicated all of her work to the public domain, and Getty had decided to list that for sale on their website, which. In a roundabout way, I, I guess isn't illegal. You can sell something that's free. I can take some leaves off of a tree and try to sell them to you. Uh, you know, th there's nothing illegal about that. It's it's bad form for sure. Mm. No, um, I'll have but 10, then, please. <laughs> yeah, uh, but then. If they, if they then go and add those images to their algorithm that scours the internet for infringements of the license and start sending out demand letters based on something that's in the public domain, which is what had happened, then that's not okay. So mm. there's a disconnect here between 
having a license and an allowance to use something versus not and how the creative community can come around that. We don't have a good answer for this right now, but at the very Mm -hmm. least, if I, as the content creator, directly send a copyright claim to somebody that is misusing my work, Hmm. um, they can file a counter notice or they can talk to me about it or the platform can just take that content down. And that's what the DMCA is supposed to do and nobody should be penalized for using it. Absolutely. All right. Uh, Using it that way, I should say. Yeah. The the way that we're talking about on YouTube, that is not the proper mechanism. Mm, Yeah. All right. But- I digress. I want to get into the next story here. As we talked a lot about copyright, let's get into some sciencey, fun, crazy stuff. Uh, the AI imaging technology has been a recurring theme on this podcast since we rebooted, and it, it probably will be because this is moving fast and it's moving in directions that I don't think I could have properly uh, predicted even a few months ago. Mm-hmm. So this is a, a link in the show notes at photogeekweekly.com to um, the, the abstract and visualization and graphs of an article um, that looks to be has been accepted by CVPR 2023. 20, uh, I don't know exactly what that is, but it seems like it's an accepted article uh, from the Graduate School of Frontier Biosciences, Osaka University, Japan. Hey, I know somebody from Japan. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, and then uh, uh, Cynet, uh, N-I-C-T, Japan also. This is cool and scary in equal measures. Mm. High-resolution image reconstruction with latent diffusion models from human brain activity. That is a boring title for what this actually is. Martin, what is this? Well, they're, they're showing people images and then reading the the brain patterns and reconstructing them with absolutely unbelievable clarity. You know, it's like if, if they can do this, they literally could just be start reading people's minds. Um, Cause we, we think vision, you know, at, at least I believe um, most seeing people um, th- think visually, you know, we, we create an image of what we're thinking about as we think. And, it's you know you could basically read people's minds if you could get if you could tap into their brain uh, their brain waves and things so it's kind of so, scary but it's amazing that they can do this just a few years ago uh, it was nothing nowhere near as good as this no it, it didn't exist really i mean there were some uh, preliminary concepts about this but uh, so uh, f- for the record this is um, functional magnetic resonance imaging that they're using as the input from the person's brain that's how they're getting the uh, the data And they are running it through an AI engine, but the engine itself, uh, and I think this is key, does not contain the image that the person is seeing. So that is not a reference that the uh, that the software is able to to pick out of its data. It is reconstructing it from other information. And so we're presented with five examples, a, a teddy bear, uh, a street with some people on it, an airplane, some people skiing, and a clock tower. And you can pretty much see that the resulting reconstructed images are of a, a plush toy, uh, a street somewhere, uh, an airplane. Uh, the, the clouds are different, and but, but the cropping is weirdly identical. Mm. Um, somebody in snow looks like they might be skiing, but the details are obscured. And what is definitely a clock tower. Uh, mm. as, and they're not perfect. But this is 
a way that um, artificial intelligence, uh, computational imaging is going to evolve in good and bad ways. I can think of a number of good ways, right? Like let's say you've got somebody in a coma, but mm. there's brain activity. You mm. might be able to see what they are thinking and yeah. have some level of at least one-way communication. A lot of people in a coma say that they could hear people during that time. Well, mm. maybe you could break down that boundary. And if you start talking about the things that they are seeing, that might break a cycle and bring somebody out of a coma. I have no idea. Yeah. I'm not yeah. a medical scientist, but there's there's something there. Um, mm. what, what if you have somebody that is uh, can't uh, speak or see or uh, communicate? Pe people in, with in, dementia. You know, some of People them cannot speak for years, and yet they believe that their ears are working and they can understand everything that's going on around them. So, you know, it could be a uh, way non into Nonverbal autism, that. right? Right. There, there's yeah. a lot of ways that you could uh, – and you, you hit on something interesting, Martin. Um, what if you've been blind since birth? Yeah. What would yeah. this – possibly be able to generate or you were blinded in childhood or something uh mm. does this will it reconstruct an image of something mm. uh it's trained obviously on visual stimulus but mm. there's ways to use this technology differently mm. and to use it badly mm. what are some of the bad ways you can think of well but i'm thinking just being able to tap into someone's thoughts without permission you know i mean for example you could you could get the um, my four-digit PIN number for my credit card. <laughs> you know, sneak into my room, grab my wallet, and take a quick scan of my brain. I mean, I'd need to be thinking about it at the time, which is highly unlikely. But and you, you ha yeah. at this point, you'd have to be shoved into an fMRI machine, which is not exactly is, something that you yeah. can pull out of your back pocket. Right, right. <laughs> so I mean, it, but it's I mean, there's there's lots of stuff. I can the good things. I mean, I'm thinking amazingly accurate lie detectors. Yeah, if you ask someone to, if they if they were at a certain place at a certain time, they are likely to recall the visual of what that what was happening there, and you could get someone committing a murder or something. And if you can get a visual of it, then they're pretty much locked up. You save a lot of court money <laughs> just just by saying you know just by asking them where they were at a specific time, they'd get a flash of the image. It'd be straight be very, pretty easy. Uh, and, and that is scary, too, because what if they reconstruct something that didn't happen based on everybody describing the scene to them and well, their that's mind the point. creates an image of it you, you that don't, didn't You don't give them the happen. scene. Yeah, you don't give them the scene. You just ask them for a time. Where were you on February the 28th at 9 o'clock? And if they'd committed a murder at that time, they're going to think about what they did. They're, and you, right. don't, you, don't, you don't need to give them any more information than that. I, I could see this being used by nation states. Uh, so if you have a prisoner of war um, that is in your custody and is non-cooperative and mm. you decide that you've got information that we need, we're going to put you in this fMRI machine, do whatever we need to uh, keep you stable in, in that machine and interrogate you in that form and read mm. the results from your brain directly. That's yeah. And that... That's something out of science fiction to me, uh, but but yeah, that's this scary true, stuff. <laughs> and you know, a, a nation state can afford to have an fMRI machine moved into their interrogation suite. Then <laughs> that that becomes a real thing that exists based on the uh, the paper that we're seeing here. Mm, so yeah, hmm. yeah, 
Yeah, I that's, mean the possibilities are endless. That's that's a good one. You definitely, it could be a national security problem. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, oh, the the world that we live in is changing so rapidly that you know I, I'm I'm the father of a small child that will turn seven years old later this year, mm. and I'm really curious what type of world that generation is going to inherit in mm. a decade from now, because yeah. this is happening so quickly. And mm. I, I can't, I try to keep my finger on the pulse of it. And then I, I quickly lose it because this stuff comes up. Mm. So we'll see. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think <laughs> we, I mean, we've, we've got to be very careful over the next, just even just a couple of years. Yeah. You know, the, there's already robots saying that they, that, that humans are the, are the problem. <laughs> you know, and, yep. and we, if get rid of us and the planet would be much better, you know, it, it's, and th- and they're probably right, but it's not the way I would like it to go. <laughs> well, and and there are certain countries that are seeing population declines. Japan is one of them, uh, yeah, where yeah. birth rates are falling off, and and the older population mm. is dying, and the population is decreasing. And uh, just as a natural way of things, mm. you know, my my wife and I are only planning on having one child. If another one happens, then then that's fine. But we're not trying mm. to uh, have a greater population than we are, right? We're not mm, trying to mm. increase the world's population because I don't mm. think that it's sustainable. But, mm. you know, the the AI idea of saying, okay, well, humans are the problem. Let's get rid of all the humans. Mm. That's also uh, a very scary uh, intellectual absolutely. rabbit hole to go down. Mm, How would absolutely. you do that? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, the... the there's, it depends on how much how much we allow them to do, and and that's where the that's where the danger is. We need to. Well, keep and them- I should say, I should say, if somebody wants to have three kids, four kids, ten kids, that's fine. I mean, you have all the rights to do that, mm. uh, and and everybody around the world should not be uh, said to to be limiting yourself. There there have been countries in the past, like China, that had their one child policy, mm. Uh, mm. which was disastrous. Because mm. it forced so many people to uh, to detect if their child was going to be a girl, mm. and that would be a shame because the boy would carry on the family name, and if you could only have mm. one child, it would be a boy, and then there was a huge mm. population that was uh, majority male as a result, and we're getting into the weeds of all of that. Mm. But the point is that we're not great at solving that problem either. Uh, right. It's uh, and, and the AIs, um, the way that this is progressing... I feel that so many people are going to be looking to the artificial intelligence opinions mm. for factual authentication of things. I've mm. already seen it where people have put statements into an AI software to generate uh, a truth or, or, or a, a false, a true or false mm. narrative saying, okay, well, somebody is saying this, are they telling the truth? And then the AI says, well, you know, on this such and such a date, this thing happened and blah, blah, blah. And these facts are true. And then people just inherently think that that is, that is now the truth. Mm. But the facts that were fed to the AI engine could have been false. Mm. And unless you do the legwork to find the original sources yourself, mm. you really don't know one way or another. You, know, you may have mentioned it on a recent episode. I'm a bit behind. But have you had a chat with OpenGPT yet? No, I have been avoiding it. Oh, because not, sorry, it chat, crap chat out of me. GPT. Yes. I, 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 from OpenAI. I had a... I had a I had a conversation with it um, last weekend, and I was amazed. 
I literally, I mean, I, I was able to, I asked it what languages it spoke. And then we, we had part of the conversation in Japanese with all of the Chinese, you know, the characters and things. It switches between languages. It, it says things that are, and, and it's in split seconds. It, it sends me back a paragraph, like three or four um, paragraphs of text back within seconds of me of me typing something in and it, it was amazing and i i'm thinking gee you know i mean that i don't know how how much computer power is behind that but it was a, it was pretty scary but it was also just it was a uh, it was amazingly fun you know and just to be able to talk to something that i know is a machine but have a completely coherent conversation i i don't think that we're on the border of sentience yet but no. I think that that will be the eventuality that mm. uh, that, that that we get to. Uh, how long that takes is the question. I don't think that there's a, a yes or no. I think it's a yes mm. that we will have artificial sentience, and mm. that that will be on a on a pace that far exceeds anything that us lowly humans will be able mm. to compete with, because mm. you could learn anything in an instant. Uh, a, yeah. a sentient AI could uh, could paint better than any human could ever paint, could mm. take a photograph better than any, well, take, create what uh, yeah. appears yeah. to be a photograph better than any individual. And, mm. and that kind of, I mean, does that devolve the art world? Well, it devolves everything about humanity. Not to uh, go on too small a scope, how many scientific papers, even right now, are going to be using AI-generated imagery and text in an mm. ungenuine way in order to falsify results, in order to make some statement and get another paper published? Because people have been faking that content for years, mm. and they've been being called out for years, and there's been retractions. But if you get the AIs involved, it's not going to be copying and pasting um, you know, one chart or cell structure diagram from one thing to another, and you can find the offset, and you can see where somebody cloned something. The AI is going to be so much better than that and we won't be able to tell truth from fiction anymore mm, because mm. truth no longer exists mm. that's a powerful statement i didn't intend for it to be that strong but i guess that's where we're going yep yep <laughs> strange <laughs> on and that scary. positive note <laughs> <laughs> uh it's it's the world we're living in we have to adapt to it and we can't just say oh no that's not for me it's the, what the world is going to be experiencing so we have to try mm. to ride that wave yeah. Okay, uh, before we get to the picks of the week, <laughs> where can people find you online, Martin Bailey? You got any workshops coming up? Anything you want to plug? Uh, where can people I, uh, send their opinions of these topics to you as well? Mm, uh, so, I mean, uh, there's a contact form on my website uh, for anyone that wants to contact me or or via any of the, um, the, the social networks that I work on. They're all linked to the top of my website at martinbaileyphotography.com. Um, regarding workshops, I, I'm going to be in Namibia in April and May this year. I've got two, two workshops coming up, three week workshops, um, with 10 days at home between them. So that's going to be fun. And the next ones after that, I've got the rest of the year to do my other stuff that I'm, that I do. Um, but then next, uh, January and February, I've got my Japan tours coming up again and, uh, two of the three tours still have a few places, and you can see all of that under the tours uh, menu at martinmailyphotography.com as well. And that link will be in the show notes at photogeekweekly.com. Uh, and, uh, and I encourage everybody to reach out 
talk to Martin and listen to Martin. Do you have your podcast still going? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, um, I'm working on what will it be? The 809th episode, I think is coming up. Um, so I was actually, I was interviewed by a, a 15 year old young lady. Um, I believe she lives in France, um, a few days ago for her YouTube channel. And it was kind of sobering when I realized that my podcast is three years older than her. <laughs> so it's a bit strange. Uh, and you've been, uh, I mean, my podcast is an infant compared to, uh, you know, what you've been doing. One of the longest running photography podcasts or podcasts out there, you're one of the first to do this. And mm. it's great to have your voice continuing. I haven't listened to you in a little while. Uh, I I regret that. I'm going to pick up and listen <laughs> to your latest episode. And uh, maybe we'll have a conversation on that front at some point in the future as well. Yeah, you've you've been kind enough to, to guest with, with me for a, num a number of times over the years. So... It's always a pleasure to have you on as well. So let's hook up. Ah, uh, the feeling's mutual, my friend. Let's uh, let's get into the picks. For uh, for I'll let Martin go first on this one because this I think is something everybody should have on their radar. Mm. So I my pick is is a SwitchBot two K um, security camera, but it's also like a baby camera, and I I have what I've done is. You know, Japan's a very safe country, but there's a little bit of an element that is scary with people getting burgled and some of it violent with, you know, with a bit of violence involved uh, recently. Burgled. And I love that. Bur I would have said burglarized, but burgled. <laughs> burglarized. Is such a word. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, just in the next town from us, there was uh, a lady killed recently with, with some, when some violent burglars uh, entered her home. So what I did was I thought, you know, what would be an easy way for us to at least either try to avoid it or detect it? And what I did was I built a little security system based on uh, Alexa, the, the Amazon um, system where you've got speakers and, and screens and things that have all got this uh, Alexa stuff in. I wanted to do it with Apple, but Apple just does not have the the number of things that, that hook into their system um, not just Apple, but companies that make things like this, these home devices. SwitchBot is one. I've ended up with a number of different companies' uh, devices, but I bought a an indoor camera and an outdoor camera that has a spotlight on it from SwitchBot, and I hooked them up to an Alexa system. It's all done over wireless. It's all done by Wi-Fi. But now I can just say to Alexa, Alexa, turn the, or well, I've called it Echo. I, I say Echo, turn the security on. And then I get a, get a, a reply saying it's on. And then after that, if someone is, if someone enters my office or comes to our front door while the security system is on, Alexa will automatically, and you have to create actions to do this. But Alexa and I apologize in advance for anybody that has their home uh, voice assistant being constantly triggered by Martin saying keywords. <laughs> <laughs> so the, what, what will happen, though, is the, the moment someone appears in these cameras, the, that video stream is shown on the device. And so I, um, I, I found it really reassuring. But what I've also done is 
I've bought a few other sensors and I've built it in so that I can I can turn on lights, I can do various things. And I think it's a great system, but the main one, uh, the main reason for getting into that was security. And if it's cost me a couple of hundred dollars to build that, um, I believe in some countries you can actually program it to call the police when someone is coming in there. So you could you could have one um, one command set up to just turn the cameras on and let you know if someone's there. If you're at home, say you're going to go away, you could have it set up so that it automatically called the police when someone enters your home. Um, and it's a relatively cheap way of doing it. Well, yeah. And so two observations here. Oh, well, one observation and a question. Uh, the observation is the price. It's forty nine ninety nine. It's on sale, ten bucks mm. off right now, and I'm not sure if that's permanent or or what. But fifty bucks for one of these smart devices, that's a good deal. Uh, it interfaces with a lot of platforms, uh, like you said, Alexa. Or I shouldn't say those keywords. Uh, <laughs> sorry, people. But um, where does it store the videos? Are you able to uh, funnel that into a local storage? Does it store it in the cloud? Because uh, if something happens, you you'll want to have a record of that. Right. Uh, so that, that's a really good point. So what I did was I've, I've signed up for the cloud recording or the cloud storage from SwitchBot, and that will automatically put the anything that start when these cameras turn on, it starts recording and puts it into the cloud. And that's especially important for the outside camera because it's not secured. It's, you literally can pull it out of its holder if you can reach it. So I'm, I'm, slightly higher than your average um height for japan for most people here in japan i'm not a tall person but it's at the extent of my reach without a stepladder so someone could theoretically just come up while that camera's out there and pluck it off and walk away with it but if they do i'll have a i'll have a video of them doing that and the outside camera is like a hundred dollars so if i couldn't get it back even I, I know $100 is not cheap, but it's not a, a bank breaker either. So I would probably just get another one and try to stick it somewhere a little bit higher this time. Yeah, I've got uh, the Nest outdoor cameras and mm. uh, one on the front and back doors. So, you know, you're covered and I pay the the fee. I figured it's like $100 a month or a, a mm. year or so uh, to have all the, the data stored uh, for a significant amount of time, more than I would yeah. need it. If if something, yeah. uh, somebody breaks into my house, I only will need like the last week's worth of recordings to see mm. uh, who might it have been if I've been away. Yeah. And I think it's that two was, months. Sorry, what's that? No, no, I, I, I it was expensive. It was though. My, my point was, mm. yeah, the 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 Nest uh, system was considerably more expensive. I don't know what their current cameras are going for, but mm. I paid a heck of a lot more than a hundred dollars for each of them. Mm. So. Mm. Yeah. And they have night vision. Um, I've got the one in the front door set so that if it can't see, it turns the spotlight on. And that is, oh, hopefully, would be a deterrent. If someone knows that there's a camera up there and they're just, they've just they just been caught on camera, probably videoed, then hopefully whatever they were trying to do on my front door, if it wasn't just ring the bell, hopefully it would be enough to scare them to, to leave. Um, yeah, even just know. having a camera there uh, would be a deterrent for a significant portion of people that might mm. be a um, a ne'er do well. Mm. But yeah. um, you know, y you think about um, how you can protect yourself, and uh, cameras and photography are a way to do that. That's a great pick. Yeah. Okay. Ma Jolly mine good. goes in a different direction. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, mine goes into the geeky sciencey type of thing. And I might have picked these before. Uh, I couldn't recall. And I'd been using it just yesterday. So uh, I decided my pick is a microscope objective. And the ones that I use are from Michitoyo. And it is the M-Plan APO Infinity Corrected Objectives. Now, they've got them from everything from 1x to 100x, maybe even 200. But um, I've got a lot of these little microscope objectives. Um, Mm. They're small, you know, the size of maybe a a film canister or so, maybe slightly longer than that. Uh, A heck of a lot heavier because it's all metal and glass. But this will allow you, with your regular camera to shoot at magnifications far in advance uh, or far higher than a regular macro lens could get you. And so when I get asked to do things at 5, 10, 20 times magnification, you got to go to one of these guys in order to make Mm. it happen. And yes, there's a lot of microscope objectives on the market. These ones, don't buy a new one. Buy them used, buy them on eBay because they're very inexpensive when they're secondhand because some research project was able to fund the purchase of a bunch of them and then they liquidate their materials afterwards and you can often get them for half of the retail price with Mm. barely a scratch on the outer barrel. Um, Now, why do I recommend this? Because people don't realize how easy it is to adapt to your regular camera. Now, I've got Mm. a special tube um, that uh, Novoflex make, a uh, great company out of Germany, and there's purpose-built equipment from them to, to attach it to your camera. But because these objectives, they are corrected to, on the barrel, it says F200 and infinity. And basically what that mm. means is, if I adapt this with a step-down ring to the front of a 200 millimeter lens or something that covers that range, like you got a 100 to 400, just put it halfway at 200 and uh, set the focus on that lens to infinity. And this lens, this microscope objective attached to the front of that will function perfectly. That's mm-hmm. all it needs. Just the step down adapter. The Michitoyo ones have an M26 thread. Uh, Olympus has other, uh, 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 um, I think it's an M25, if I'm not mistaken, but just double check and get the right piece of machined aluminum to screw into the front of your lens at the filter thread size of whatever your 200-ish millimeter lens is, and Mm. you can use these things flawlessly. I'm not going to say it's going to be easy because your depth (laughs) of field will be a fraction of a razor thin, Mm. uh, but that's how you do it. It's not a difficult process to get the equipment to work together. It is difficult to get the final result. I use automated focusing rails and, and there's other equipment involved, but actually adapting the objective to your camera is pretty simple. Uh, hmm. and people just kind of shy away from the concept because they just don't know how easy it is. So those objectives, that's my pick of the week. And there'll be a link to a, an eBay search that just has that keyword in it and you'll find a bunch of results. The prices will range anywhere from a couple of hundred dollars. So like two to $300 for some of the um, lower magnification or more beaten up ones to a couple of thousand because they do have some high resolution varieties and high magnification ones typically go for a bit more. But mm-hmm. uh, have you ever played with microscopes uh, with your photography, yeah. Martin? Yeah, well, you you got me into. I, I know you initially. Have, so it's a bit of a leading with, question. Yeah, um, with the uh, I, but I I did go with microscopes more than than what you're doing there. But that is the freedom of not having to have something that fits under the microscope um, is something that I've been interested in. 
and I had not seen that uh, that tube that you got there. What did you say it was Novotech? Novoflex, yeah. Novo um, Novoflex. Novoflex. They make a lot of great gear. They make the automated focusing rail that I prefer to use, the Castell Micro as well. Uh, maybe I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well for people that yeah. want a, a ready-made kit. Uh, Novoflex gear is not cheap, so you know, just be warned. Mm. But um, if you already have that 200 millimeter lens, then you just need the machined aluminum adapter. I've got mm. the dedicated tube, which is nice because um, you can get uh, optionally equipped with a um, uh, an Arca Swiss uh, long plate on the bottom where you can mm. adjust very easily on a rail at any point along that tube. I uh, can lock it onto a tripod and get your mm. positioning uh, you know, pretty pretty well configured that way. I can see at least a few dollars going their way. It's, it's, um, yeah, that's great. I've got the website up now. I'll take a look, see if I can right. try not to annoy my wife anymore with large purchases. Hey, uh, you know, my, my wife has long ago stopped looking at the, uh, the bank statements for when uh, the camera gear is purchased. It's just, okay, yeah. you need that. You've justified it to me so many times. Just do it. So long as yeah. we can pay the bills, that's yeah. fine. <laughs> so that, that's that's kind of where she's at as well. It's uh, it's good when you get to that point. Um, my biggest problem was taking up archery last year because that was not work-related and could no way be made work-related, but it cost me a lot of money, and I, I just was happy that she said, just do it and don't tell me how much it costs because <laughs> it'll freak me out. Martin, do you want to tell me how much it cost? It was, um, <laughs> it was probably converted at a hundred yen a dollar, which is actually a little bit low now. Um, it was probably about seven thousand dollars, which is it's not much more than a good lens, but um, it was a lot more than I expected to pay for a bow. So, uh, yeah, d diving <laughs> in the deep end to a new hobby can often be mm. really expensive. Mm. Uh, whether yeah. that hobby is is archery or golf. For that matter, yeah. you know, a good oh, set yeah. of clubs yeah. would run you the same price or more. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. But, yeah. Uh, but it's hours of fun. I'm enjoying it. So that's good. Good exercise too. Less screen yeah. time is always a, a valuable thing in today's world. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm looking, I'm looking far away and that's, I was getting, my eyesight was getting worse because I was forever looking at the, at the screen. And now I'm looking 50 meters or so down the range and that's a lot better for me. I've thrown an arrow on occasion. I don't know. Do you call it throwing an arrow when it's in the uh, in the bow? I'm not sure what the terminology is, um, but there's a heritage uh, um, or a historical park nearby, and they've got an archery range. And I'll you know pay them the the five dollars mm. or whatever to uh, to have a, a quiver full of arrows, and I am terrible at it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, it's, I we normally I think people normally just say shoot an arrow just like a bullet, but um, I. I was when I first moved to third uh, to fifty meters. I got all of my arrows, all six arrows in a set, uh, in the yellow, which is nines and tens. Um, and it, I've only done it a couple of times since, but it's very, um, it's it, it feels great, you know. The and the, and I was I was on the range with just one lady that's often there with me and she says what were you thinking about when you when you got them all in the yellow and I said and I thought about it for a moment and I said nothing she said that's the point and it was like it was a very yet a zen moment so 
words yeah. of wisdom from yeah. Martin Bailey. I appreciate you being on the podcast again, Martin. It's always fun Not to just banter about anything. We could keep talking for another hour about nothing, yeah. except your wife would get mad because that would be past seven o'clock. <laughs> so we should probably wrap this episode up. Yeah. Uh, thanks for being on the show. Uh, and thanks to everybody for listening. It's always fun to have the, the audience and the comments that I get coming back in the emails uh, and the comments even on the website. Feel free to let us know what you think about the show. Uh, I take that feedback to heart, and I look forward to you all listening to the next episode. And between now and then, it is time to get out and shoot. Shoot.